The Mountain Vista Baptist Church podcast features the preaching and teaching of Pastor Robert Perry and the guest speakers of Mountain Vista Baptist. The purpose of this podcast is to help believers grow, to edify the saints, and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please tonight, and we're going to go, let's just go straight to uh, chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll recap over the last couple weeks and recap even what we spoke about last week to make sure we're all on the same page. I believe it's, it's vitally important for us to make sure that we are, um, are grounded and solid in the things that we've been discussing as we move along. Uh, that way we can be sure to uh, have that firm foundation of uh, these uh, events that are unfolding and then, of course, have a proper understanding and, and uh, something that's actually stuck. And so they say repetition is the key to the learning, right? And so we'll continue to cut, go back and recap, and that might take us, make it take a little longer uh, in being able to accomplish everything than it normally would, uh, but I think it's going to help us to retain the information a whole lot easier and, uh, and better as well. And so, guys, I have the remote up here this week, actually, so I'm just going to, con- I'll, I'll run it, all right? And I'm uh, move along, and uh, Brother Brandon's out, and we've got some different things going on and such, and so I said, hey, who's, who's uh, clicking the slides tonight? And they said, I don't know. I said, well, I guess I'll do it, and I'll lead singing, and I'll preach, and everything else, and I'll shoot a laser at you and everything else, all right? And so it'll be a good night. I get, to, I get a new toy, and uh, so we might be here all night long. I don't know, but nevertheless, Revelation chapter 5, we'll read in just a moment. But uh, as we do review and get back into uh, uh, where we've been, I want to call your attention again to the outline that John was given there in Revelation 1 and verse 19. He said he, uh, G, the Lord told him to write about the things he saw, uh, write about the things that are and the things that would be after these things. And so we've broken the writings of the book of Revelation uh, down into these three segments, and we've seen how they've unfolded. And of course, chapter one holds the events of the things that he saw, chapters two and three, the things that are, and chapters four and onward through the end of the book of the things that are after these things. And in fact, we see clues of that even, uh, just glimpses of that. We, we, we went in great detail of why that is, but we see clues and glimpses of that even in the first verse of chapter four, where the first word is after, the first two words after this, and the last words is things which must be hereafter. And so it triggers that. It's a signal to say, all right, we've moved on from that segment. And uh, so there's three segments. We're done with two of the three. But uh, as we've entered into part three, uh, the things that happen uh, in part three and onward are the things that happen after the church. And uh, we've discussed those things in great detail, but um, <clears throat> we are now studying what we would call the 70th seven uh, of uh, Daniel's 70 weeks that we've, we studied as we went through the study of Daniel. And uh, the time that we see is, that is unfolding, is specifically even these, these last seven years, is a time <clears throat> that is a, a period of time designated specifically for Israel. We've even looked at how that seven-year, what we call regularly the tribulation period in Scripture is also known as the time of Jacob's troubles, right? And uh, we said Jacob, when uh, one of the patriarchs of uh, the people of Israel, and uh, when he was wrestled with God, God changed his name from Jacob to that of 
Israel. And so we know that this time is specifically for that people. And, uh, and so we've gone through uh, the things that have taken place because of the Old Covenant and even some things in the book of Leviticus as well. But here's kind of a picture uh, timeline as we've seen things unfolding. We have the uh, Jerusalem was taken and then uh, those a set of tens and then the decree issued and the sevens and then uh, 62 weeks until the Messiah was cut off or 62 sevens. And uh, now there's been a pause though. We, we kind of likened it to the, uh, the time out or more like a, a foul that takes place at the end of a basketball game. The game is still continuing on because free throws are happening and, and uh, teams are boxing out and all that type of thing. But the clock is actually is stagnant. It's, it's not moving while even though gameplay is still resuming. And it doesn't actually uh, continue to pick back up until the, uh, one of the, either the defender or offensive player rebounds the ball. You see what I'm saying? And so uh, it, the play is still continuing on, but actually time has stopped. That's kind of how it is for us right now. Um, time, uh, events are still unfolding, but God's countdown has been put on pause, and 69 of those 70 weeks have unfolded, and we've got one more seven or seven weeks or seven years to unfold, and, and we see how all this is taking place, and it began with Babylon and Persia and, and the Greek Empire, and now this conglomerate of what we're calling the imperialistic democratic alliances, of course, but we see why, and we remember why all this is taking place with some places in the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus 25 tells us uh, about the land Sabbaths. It tells us about, in Leviticus 26, it tells us about the penalty of violating those land Sabbaths. And then it talks about the land's restoration or the jubilee after 49 years and the penalty of violating the old covenant as the Jews were disposed from the land for 490 years or uh, 77s. And so uh, that details all of that. And then Daniel 9 tells us that uh, those penalties will last for those 77s or 490 uh, years. And uh, for some reason, that is not showing the entire verse. Take your Bibles and just turn there then, since it's not showing up up there. Leviticus 26 and verse number 43, the first part of um, the verse there uh, details the, that portion that's in orange. And the latter part of the verse shows the, that which is green there. So let me get there also in my Bible. Leviticus 26 and uh, verse number 40, 43 says, The land also shall be left of them and shall enjoy her Sabbath while she lieth desolate without them. And so we find that is speaking here of this area here um, and, and why that is taking place. But then the rest of the verse, in verse number 43, it goes on to say um, that, and they shall accept the punishment of their iniquity because even, uh, because even because they despise my judgments and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And so we find the punishment is being unfolded through the rest of this time and uh, the 77s that were, would unfold as we've discussed uh, already. So the age of the Gentiles is what we have been calling that. Uh, Christ put it as the times of the Gentiles in the Gospels. And uh, that final seven-year period specifically, the day of the Lord as we, we had talked about, or uh, the tribulation period as we better know it, is going to be the worst period of them all. 
And uh, so here's another dis- uh, picture to display where we're at. And those, that candy cane striped area there is representative of the, uh, the last part, the last seven years, uh, what we know as tribulation. And so we put it in perspective in, an outline, in the outline of Revelation now, okay? So we see these events unfolding, and ha- now where does that line up to this book that we are currently in, this book of the book of Revelation? Well, we have the church age that is, is taking place at the beginning of the book. In fact, it is part of uh, what John saw as he wrote in verse, chapter number 1. It, con- it continues on through the chapters of chapter 2 and 3 as he wrote those seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, But then we studied clearly how uh, the church is not going to be a part of this seven-year tribulation period, not just because of the pictures, not just because of the type that we see, I'm sorry, I hit the button, uh, the type that we see in uh, John uh, there in chapter number four, but also the scriptural evidences of of Paul, for instance, saying uh, that we, the church, will not experience the wrath of God, and, and, uh, and so on and so forth, as we discussed in great detail in several weeks ago. And so there's a resurrection, if you may, or what we have called the rapture, uh, taking away, uh, and that takes place right here as we are coming in the chapter number four. And so we see this again, the church age takes place, the church is raptured out, the seven-year tribulation period is unfolding there through chapters 6 through 18, and then Jesus Christ will return, and we'll find that taking place at the latter part of this, uh, of this book, of course. And so in chapter 5, let's pick up in verse number 1, and uh, we covered the first five verses last week, and uh, we'll continue on and cover a few more um, chapter, verses 6 and 7 tonight. But in verse number 1, it says this, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open, to read the book, and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Verse number five, and one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Now notice verse number six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, uh, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Our Father, we thank you for this night. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to be here in your house. And Lord, I'd ask that you just be with me as I deliver this word here tonight. Help us to uh, be guided by your spirit into all truth here this evening. Lord, we ask that you be on glorified as we see that is exactly what is taking place in this scene in chapter 4 and chapter 5, praise and worship, because you are worthy, and, uh, and uh, we ought to honor you and recognize you as such. And so tonight, I pray that the events of this service will do that, just that, honor and glorify you as we uh, just praise your name for who you are and all that you do. I ask that your will would be accomplished here tonight, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. And so we've seen this kind of scene starting to unfold. John's caught up into the heavenly throne room. In chapter 4, it tells us about this. And as he's there, he sees all the wonders of this heavenly throne room. He sees the Father himself sitting on his throne, 
he's surrounded around his throne by, uh, it says, 24 elders, and that was one of the clues even to help us know that the church was, uh, the entirety of the church was in uh, heaven at this time, and that the rapture had taken place, as we discussed several weeks ago. And then we read down, and there was a beast, and it had uh, uh, the four, uh, uh, there were four beasts uh, full of eyes, he said in verse number six, and the first beast was like a lion, the second beast was like a calf, the third beast was like the face of a man, the fourth beast was was like a flying eagle, he says, and he tells what these beasts are doing and and what's taking place, and they're singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which which was and is and is to come. And uh, in these, the, as all this is taking place, there's these 24 elders are there and they throw their crowns down before the feet of, of, the, of their heavenly father saying that he's worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because he's created all things and he's created them for his pleasure and by his pleasure they were and are created. And that's where we start to unfold the events in chapter number five, as we looked at last week. And and we said last week, as we got into chapter number five, we noticed, number one, that Christ is the Lord of history. And as we went through that, we discovered why that is the case. And we said he's the Lord of history because of his father's plan. We see in verse number one again, as we recap, he said, And I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, we discussed what this book must have been. And the only clues we have about what is in this book and or what this book is, is uh, found there in that verse itself. And it's just minute in in what's given, but in what the details are given, and we go into Jewish culture and tradition, we we can pinpoint at least a good estimation as to what this this book is. In fact, it's not a book like we would hold today, like where it's bound on the back. That book, the word book there is the Greek word uh, biblion, and it literally means a scroll. And uh, so this scroll is sealed, and it says it has seven seals, but it has writing inside and outside. That's the clue that gives us an idea of what this, this book or scroll actually is. In, the, in ancient days in Jewish culture, uh, when a, a document was sealed up, it meant that it was binding, and uh, once it was broken, it had to come to a completion and such. Those, those seals were broken, it had to come to a completion. And so since it, this document <clears throat> was so important, uh, how could you know what was inside unless you opened the, scroll, the seals? Well, by the inscription that was put on the outside. In the ancient days in Jewish culture, what the type of scrolls that they would inscribe on the outside, a, de- a description of what was on the inside, were land deeds. Now, here's here, what we've been talking about is the fact that Israel has been disposed from their land because of their, uh, their disobedience to the old covenant and their disobedience to the land Sabbaths that we've discussed as well already. And so if, if this is following, as we would see that the clues given and Jewish tradition and history would say, then this land deed is the land deed of, uh, for, uh, for, God's, for, for the promised land, if you may, for God's people. Right now, he's allowed them to be disposed and let it be under Gentile control. But one day, they will return back to their land full and and have complete control. The Lord himself, a Jewish king, will sit on the throne there and uh, and, uh, and establish a kingdom. We'll get to that as we get to the latter books of chapters of this book, of course. 
Uh, but here's the deal about a land deed in that situation. Just anyone couldn't open it up. There had to be a mediator. There had to be an advocate for both parties. And so who could be an advocate for both parties? They would have to go to a judge, a magistrate, if you may. And uh, of course, we begin to see that these are the events unfolding. And in fact, and I don't want to jump ahead of myself, but look at verse number seven. As Jesus comes into this throne room, it says that he came and he took that book or that scroll out of the right hand of him who sat upon the throne. And look at verse number eight. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the four uh, and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odor, and, uh, which are the prayers of the saints. And it says they sung a new song, and it goes on throughout all of that they are singing and, and praising the Lord for. And it says in verse, chapter, verse 1 of chapter 6 that he goes and he opens the first seal. And so this is the first act of Jesus Christ, if you may, being the almighty judge. And this is God's, God the Father's plan from the beginning. And we find this unfolding, and we find that he's the Lord over history because before the foundations of the world ever began, this was the plan. And before you and I were even thought of, this was the plan. And I, it just cracks me up for people to say, well, that book, the Bible, is just archaic, and it's not relevant for today anymore. My friends, it's as relevant as any relevance can be. Because everything that it says is true and everything says, it says will happen is going to happen because everything that it said it would happen has happened. And what I'm saying tonight, my friends, is that this is proving that Christ is the Lord over all things that unfold. He's sovereign. He's Lord over history because of his Father's plan, as we noticed last week. But we also notice in verses 2 through 4, he's Lord over history because of heaven's problem as well. Because we read in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 5 that... Um, there was a problem on the hands of those in the heavenly throne room at that time. In fact, there was some dismay. John even wept, it says, because the question was asked, who is worthy to be able to open up this book? And the answer is in verse number three at first is this, no man in heaven nor in earth nor neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And so, man, they're in a predicament. Because here's the deal, this is an agreement be between God the Father and His people, the human beings. As we said earlier, the only one worthy to open a book is a judge, someone as an advocate, a mediator between the two. And since God the Father instituted the Old Covenant with, the, with, his, with his people, the Jewish people, neither of them had the authority in that way. And don't take my words wrong in saying God doesn't have authority. I know that Jesus is God and God, God the Father, and God the Father is Jesus. But in this scenario and how this is laying out, uh, I think you understand that that's why the, the predicament is, is who's going to open this? Because this is an agreement between God the Father and His people as well. And so neither of them had the, the right to open it at that time. But he is Lord of, of, of history because of the Father's plan, because of heaven's problem, but also we see in verse number five, because of his power. It says, and one of the elders, he said unto me, unto John, weep not, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Notice what it says, he's prevailed 
to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And the reason why he has the power, the reason why he's prevailed is because as he would even say of himself in John 16 and 33, these things have I spoken unto you that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulations, but be of good cheer. He said, I have overcome the world. And he's prevailed because he's overcome and he's overcome the world. And in overcoming the world, he even said that he overcome the one who had reign and rule over this world at this time. John 2 and 14 says, And I have written unto you, fathers, because ye have known that uh, him that is of, from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because ye are strong and the word of God abideth in you. And ye have overcome the wicked one. Because of Christ in us, we've overcome the wicked one. How is that ca- the tr- case? Because he's overcome the wicked one. And so we find that Jesus is overcome and that gives him the power. And we notice in chapter 10 and verse number 42 of the book of Acts, it says this specifically about Christ. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he, Jesus Christ, which was ordained of God. And this ties it all together to be the judge of the quick and the dead. So when they say, who's worthy? I can't find anyone. When he steps on the scene, automatically he's worthy because he is the judge. He's the Lord over history because of the Father's plan and because of the predicament there, the problem in heaven and because of his power. But as we move on into verses 6 and 7 tonight, we notice that not only is Christ the Lord of history, but secondly, Christ is the Lord of victory as well. In verses 6 and 7, let's read it again. It says, I beheld... And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. My friends, we find that Christ is the Lord of victory and he's victorious because he was slaughtered. In verse number six, it tells us there that he's standing there um, and in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the elders, he stood as a, a, a stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now that phrase, standing as it had been slain, is actually an idiom or a figure of speech from the Greek, and it literally means this, it means that he is back from the dead, or we would say it as he's resurrected. And so they literally translated it as it was written, which is right to do, my friends. But the, the context or the meaning behind it, uh, if we, as we read it in English, doesn't quite do it justice. And we find here in verse number six that where he said, stood a lamb as it had been slain. It's not as if it's some lamb that's lying there beaten and senseless and dead and defiled. It had been slain, but had risen. It had been slain, but was standing victoriously. And he's victorious because he was slaughtered and overcame that death and overcame that, that, that destruction. When John sees Jesus here at first, though, we notice something that's quite interesting. Because we find in verse number 5, the elder, one of the elders, one of the 24 elders that is there, describes Jesus, he says, as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But when John lifts up his eyes and he sees Jesus, he doesn't see Jesus as the lion. He doesn't see Jesus as the root of David or the king on the throne. 
He sees Jesus as the lamb sacrificed for our sins. Aren't you glad for the fact that Jesus is our lamb? That doesn't detract at all from his authority, my friends. It doesn't detract at all from his magnificence or his, or his rule. But what we find here is this is a very beautiful text that describes all that has taken place. In fact, that word lamb is a, is a Greek word, uh, uh, arneon, which means a little pet lamb. You say, why, why that? Well, let me take you back to the book of Exodus. We find where Moses and, and the people of God are, are there in, in Egypt, right? And uh, they were told to take a lamb that was spotless, without blemish, right? A young lamb. And to bring it in and to shed its blood and to put that blood on the doorpost. And every year at the Passover and such, those types of things, those sacrifices would take place. And why? Because it was, a, 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 it was for the remission of their sins, but it only lasted for a time. But my friends, this New Testament tells us that Christ was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world so that everyone that trusts him, everyone that would call upon his name could be saved. And it's once for all. He died once for all, my friends. He, see, he, uh, he was definitely the lamb that was beaten. He was definitely the lamb that was stricken. He was, he's still the lamb that bears the marks of the cross, but he's not a lamb that is laying there dead. He isn't rejected any longer. He is not thirsty. He is not tired. He's no longer subjected to that the cruelty of those Roman soldiers who mocked his name and beat him uh, with, with, without any regard for human decency. He doesn't have to, he doesn't, uh, he's not experiencing the agony of the cross any longer. He is no longer dead in that cold, dark tomb, my friends, for he has arisen and he has been carried away into victory and he's in the midst of the throne. He overcame all that Satan could muster, everything that Satan could throw at him. Every, he, he threw at him everything plus the kitchen sink and he still overcame it all, my friends. And as he carried his own precious blood to the mercy seat in heaven and applied it there. See, my friends, Christ, he's the Lord of victory because he was slaughtered. He's the Lord of victory. He's victorious because we find that he's also standing. Uh, unfortunately, I guess I didn't put the right verses up there on the screen. So you'll have to look in your Bible in verse number six. In verse number six, and beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders, we saw the lamb as if he was slaughtered, as if he was slain, as if he was slain. but notice before that it says he stood there. Our Lord's the Lord of victory because he's standing. And John describes him as that resurrected lamb. And John is told that Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he has overcome. And he has the ability to stand even after all that has taken place. And to overcome, it simply means to, to be victorious over something or someone. And he's victorious because he was slaughtered. He's victorious because he's standing. But he's victorious also because he's strong. As we had mentioned earlier, that Jesus said that he's overcome the world. He said that he's over, we've overcome the wicked one because he's in us. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, he said this, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, 
that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them uh, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus' death and resurrection would overcome the enemy's dominion on the earth. And in so doing, Jesus took away the enemy's only weapon that he has against us. And that is death itself. And Jesus has uh, raised victorious over death, hell, and the grave. Um, the Father's deed over Israel's land has deeded over, the, 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 uh, over Israel's land to the enemy or the Gentile world for a time. But now we see the judge of the world has the authority to inspect the deed and to open it up, to bring to fruition, to bring to an end those last details that are outlined therein to be able to accomplish the fulfillment of it so that he might return and be able to set up that kingdom. And by his death and resurrection, Jesus is worthy to be able to play the mediator between God and man to judge. But my friends, we see that he's the Lord of victory. He's victorious because he was slaughtered, because he was standing, because he's strong. But notice with me also that he's victorious because he's searching as well. Verse number six, it tells us this. He's it was been, had been slain. He says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. Now, in this last phrasing here, it has a twofold message. One, in, the, in what I said, is that he's victorious because he's searching. It gives us the details here of the fact that Jesus is all seen and he's all ruling. When he says he has seven eyes and those seven, uh, those seven horns, horns oftentimes are a picture of judgment or rule. And those seven eyes is pointing out that he's completely 100% all-knowing, all-seeing as well. And, uh, of course, we, as John sees this, we know that Jesus, in his appearance, is not always having seven horns and seven eyes. Um, there's plenty of descriptions of how beautiful Christ is and, and such and how we'll look on his face, but this is, is descriptive for us. Again, John is using word pictures to be able to give us information that he really doesn't have any idea how to put words to. I mean, if you were in heaven also, you'd be in the same predicament. And I'd like to know exactly how you describe Jesus as all-seeing and all-knowing and all-powerful. Probably depends upon the context in which you were living at the time as well. If you have children, it might have some blues clues in it. It might have some Nickelodeon characters. I don't know, but I'm just saying you're going to grasp at straws to be able to describe something that's indescribable. And that's what John is doing here. He's describing Jesus the best way that he can. But we find that this, this phrasing tells us that he's victorious because he's searching, and he searches the hearts of man. And aren't you glad that he came for you and I as well Amen. so that we might have salvation? But he's victorious before we close tonight. He's victorious because he is sovereign. Notice verse number seven again, I mentioned it earlier, but he says, the Bible says, and he came and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Who was it that was sitting on the throne? God the Father. He was the one that was holding this book in his hand. And so here we find the picture, Jesus comes to the Father in verse number seven, and he removes the book from the Father's hand. And we kind of can already begin to get a sense of authority being transferred from Father to Son, if you may. 
And therefore, the events that follow after the, uh, uh, follow this are the first moments of Christ exercising his authority as the judge of the world. And in particular, he begins this by opening the land deed for Israel and rendering it uh, to the point where it would be accomplished and finished. Eventually, he will award the land to Israel as promised to Abraham, as he as was promised to Abraham would do so. But notice that the, the Bible says this scroll has seven seals. So opening this is not a one-time ordeal. It is a process of time. And as we go on, we will notice that as Jesus opens every seal of this scroll, while he's in heaven, and he's breaking for, off the first seal, and then he breaks off the second seal, and this process is taking place. But as Jesus is in heaven, the judge, and as he's opening up this seal, these seals uh, in heaven, events begin to unfold on the earth. And in fact, the, this is the pattern that we will see as we move into chapter 6 and through chapter 19, that the events that take place in heaven trigger events that take place on earth in those seven years of tribulation. And it all begins with Jesus opening the scroll, breaking loose the seals of the scroll. So consider the scene with me tonight before we close. In chapter 4, we're ushered into the throne room of God, and God the Father in His magnificence is sitting on the throne. He's surrounded by the 24 elders, robed in white, and crowns upon their head, and the four beasts are there giving Him honor and glory. Those are the cherubims, as we discussed last week. And and then we find that as John is seeing this unfold, that as the cherubims cry out, he is holy, and cry out that he is worthy. The, the 24 elders, they bow down and worship him and throw their crowns at his feet and say that he's worthy as well to receive glory and honor because everything that's created was created by him. And it was created for his honor and for his pleasure. And they were and are created, they said. And as we move on to verse number five, uh, John, or chapter number five, John looks even closer to the throne and notices God holding a book in his hand, this scroll. And he has some questions about this scroll. He's wondering what that's all about. The problem is, is as they try to even consider what could be in the scroll, they come to find out that. No one that is present at that moment has the authority to open it. So John begins to weep. But one of the elders says, don't weep, John, because here comes the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Here comes the root of David, the king of kings. And he's able to open up that scroll. And so John quickly looks and glances and sees Jesus coming and sees him as the lamb that was slain for the sin of the world. But now Jesus, he takes that scroll from the father's hands and he begins to open up that that scroll and he's about to complete bring to a complete finish his redemptive work the lamb is worthy to take the book and open the seals as it states and if the scroll is a title deed as we said what right does he have to open it well we already discussed he is the judge over all things he's been appointed as such but why well i believe that there's clearly in scripture three express reasons why he's worthy to be the judge. And one is he's, he is worthy to be the judge by the right of, of creation. He created it. And so he has the right to judge it. He has the right to be the judge, not only because of creation, but also because of Calvary. He redeemed it. 
He gave himself for it. Why is he worthy to be judged? Because he created this world. Because he died on Calvary for this world. Why is he worthy to judge this world? Also, not only because of the, his creation, because of Calvary, but also because of his conquest. He's coming back. And he's going to take it back. Amen. We discussed the second, uh, second coming, and we'll get to that as we close out this book. But he is going to sit on a throne. And claim this, this world as his own. So one day in heaven, the Lamb will take the seven-sealed scroll out of the hand of the Father. When he does, it will signal the beginning of the end, if you may, for Satan. And one day Jesus will receive glory that he's been denied uh, by the world for so long. Because it says, and the scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He, he has earned the right because he squared off against all of hell and he's carried off to victory as well. Jesus is the winner, my friends. And because Jesus is the winner, if we know him as our savior, we are winners as well. We, have, we, we, we sing that song, I'm on the winning side. There's a song that says, I'm a winner either way, if I go or if I stay. And my friends, if we know Christ, we are a winner. We are overcomers. As I mentioned earlier, we saw that word overcomer in chapter 2 and chapter 3 as John wrote to the, to the churches. And I just quickly simply said, hey, when you see that word, just take that to mean the believer, the saved. Because that's the only way we overcome is through the, the overcomer himself, Christ. And he is a winner and in him we are winners also, my friends. So the question tonight is, who is Jesus to you and I? If he's our Savior, we're on the right side. But if, unfortunately, we have not trusted him as our Savior, we are on the losing side, ultimately. And while we have time, we need to turn to him and trust him because he is the Lord of history and he is the Lord of victory. Now, you notice there's still a few verses left in chapter number five, and we will continue on with the Christ as Lord next week. Well, maybe next week. I might take a little break next week being Thanksgiving. We'll see how it goes. Uh, but we will nevertheless continue on considering this thought of how Christ is Lord. But aren't you glad tonight that we have the truths of Scripture to encourage us even in such uncertain days that we live in today? Our Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word that instructs and, and gives us encouragement. And Lord, I ask now that you would be honored and glorified through the time that we've had tonight. And Lord, now as we enter into our time of prayer, that you'd hear our requests and answer them, of course, according to your will and your way. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're here tonight and you've not yet turned in a blue prayer card and you have one filled out already, Brother Matt, just stay in the back. If you'll hold it up high for him to see, he'll grab it as he makes his way up to give me the ones that have already been turned in. It looks like everything's been turned in, Brother Matt. So I'll announce these here tonight. And I hope that you'll jot them down and uh, make them a matter of prayer this evening and throughout the rest of the week as well. Um, uh, and then, of course, if you do have any updates, please use one of these cards. Uh, make sure that you write uh, at the top that it is an update, and then we will, of course, update the, bolt, church bolt, the uh, prayer bulletin accordingly. Miss um, Beverly's asking prayer tonight. He sa she says her uh, Aunt Vicki is in the hospital with a lot of health issues, and uh, so be in prayer that she'd be able to be released soon and that she'd be able to start feeling better quickly as well. So remember uh, Miss Beverly's Aunt Vicki. Brother Ed Richards Jr. Is, uh, is, is asking prayer for uh, Cindy. Uh, how do you say her last name? Stacy. And uh, that's Micah's girlfriend who has an abscessed tooth. 
has an appointment with the dentist, dentist on Monday, and so just be in prayer that the Lord would help ease some of that pain and that the dentist would be able to help her with that as well. And then his son Eric is on the way from Kuwait to Iraq and will be in Iraq for at least, is that nine months, is that right? And so please be in prayer for Eric and for his safety as he's deployed away. Miss Juanita is asking prayer uh, for, an, uh, she has an unspoken. Also be in prayer for the kids to be able to catch up with their schooling after being out here recently with COVID. And then um, be in prayer for uh, Brother Kyle. He started a new job on Monday and it's going well so far. And so please be in prayer for those and also praise the Lord for the goodness of God in their life through that job. Um, Brother Don Myers is asking a prayer tonight um, and uh, I'll give you an update about this as well. Um, we are excited about starting uh, the uh, new uh, Discipled Veterans Program here soon, and uh, I, we had a good meeting a couple of Saturdays ago with men that were able to be there and uh, interested in participating in that as well, and uh, then I know there was others that just weren't able to be there, but uh, they're interested in participating also. This would be a way for us to be able to reach uh, the military uh, in our community as well. I talked with Brother Don, and Brother Don is... Uh, has, uh, accepted the opportunity to be able to lead that ministry for us, and uh, so we're excited about that fact, and so if you're interested in that ministry and participating, he's the guy you're going to want to coordinate with, because he's going to be uh, working all those plans and, and all that out, and he's going to be uh, recruiting individuals to help him uh, with different aspects of things as well, uh, but he's, at, he's of course asking prayer tonight that the Lord would just be with that, and he'd use it mightily, and I believe he will. And I'm thankful for Brother Don's uh, willingness to do that and then also for the others that are willing to participate as well. So let's make sure to keep that a matter of prayer also. Uh, Brandon and Jessica were able to go home from the hospital yesterday evening, and uh, he actually uh, called or talked with them yet earlier today, and uh, they were wanting to even be here tonight. And I said, well, man, that's a pretty quick turnaround. Uh, Brandon, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I think we're going to be able to. And uh, then uh, texted a little bit later and said, uh, I don't think that's going to work. And so uh, I understand that, and uh, we're, being, we're continuing to pray for them, of course, but we're thankful for how the Lord's worked in their life and protection and uh, guidance already and glad that they're home also. And so just continue to be in prayer for them and look forward to them being able to be back here uh, soon in the next couple of services at least. And, uh, but let's go to the Lord in prayer tonight. And Yes, Brother Myra. My, Myra, baby girl Myra, yep, and uh, so we'll be in prayer for them, and we're excited about that, but let's uh, find yourself a prayer partner if you'd like tonight, we'll go to the Lord in prayer, you pray for as long or as for as little as you'd like, and when you're done, you're free to be dismissed, and we're thankful that you are here this evening.